This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. So a little bit later on the show today, we're going to be speaking with Mario Conseco from Research Company because they have a new poll out about driving problems, the things that you have seen on the road in the last month. There were some surprises in there that I thought for sure, things that would be way more common than they actually seem to be, according to this poll. Anyway, so we thought that we would kind of bounce off that today for our hot question of the day and ask you, what poor driving behavior out there annoys you the most? So we, we had to narrow it down to four, and I'm sorry, because I know or three. I know there's more out there, obviously. There's not signaling. Man, that's mine. I'm going to tell you right now. I can't even get through it without telling you. That is one of my biggest pet peeves, is people who don't signal. Poor parking. Oh, yeah, you see that too, right? I saw somebody straight at curbside parking the other day who was pretty much halfway out into the road. And I just thought, I can't believe you walked away from your car like that and you thought that was okay. Uh, What about harsh braking or steering, like somebody who slams on the brakes or doesn't stay in their lane? Or other, we had to leave that fourth spot open for you to reply and tell us which poor driving behavior annoys you the most, unless it's one of those ones that we chose there. So you'll find this poll online. It's at CKNW or at Simisarah980 on Twitter. You can email me because I'm sure you'll want to share your thoughts. Perhaps you need a few sentences to do that. That is Simi at CKNW.com. Use our buzz line. Go ahead. Complain about something that you saw on the road. 604-331-2899. We've already gotten a lot of replies on this, actually. Uh, People are saying things like driving in the passing lane and then not passing. Uh, Eric tweeted to say driving slow in the fast lane. Uh, Then somebody else tweeted to say not, um, not looking essentially when they are turning right, you know, like not looking to see if there's cars coming there, only looking at not the pedestrians either. Making wide turns and not sticking to your lane. That was a tweet from Bill Rankin. I get you on that one too. And then Alan tweeted to say, stopping illegally in the no stopping lane, especially during busy rush hour, no stopping times. I'm with you on that one too. There's so many that I'm with you on this for. So check out our hot question of the day today. We will be talking to Mario Conseco later about what people told him when they asked him some of these questions. But what driving behavior annoys you the most? We are talking about and getting reaction to the latest developments in the transit strike. As you've been hearing, big disruption for one week from today. Unifor has announced that all bus drivers will go on strike. Complete shutdown of the bus system Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of next week. And we have just actually gotten comments from the Coast Mountain Bus Company as well. They have just put out a statement on this. And their press release says that Coast Mountain Bus Company is alarmed to learn the union will be taking the drastic step of shutting down Metro Vancouver bus and sea bus service as part of its campaign for more money. That's what the press release says. The president, Michael McDaniel, is quoted as saying, it is completely unacceptable. Our customers are being dragged into this dispute. He says Coast Mountain Bus Company is addressing the union's complaints about working conditions as well as providing generous wage increases beyond what is in other public sector settlements in British Columbia. And he says the union is willing to disrupt lives of commuters to get the wages it wants. It goes on to reiterate some of the points in the dispute and what CNBC is offering. 
but let's get some reaction to that and some reaction to what we've been hearing from you on the phones, and that is quite a bit of negative reaction to the announcement that there will be this bus shutdown on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of next week. So joining us now is Gavin McGarrigal, the Western Regional Director of Unifor. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Simi. What is your response to what Coast Mountain Bus Company had to say just now? Well, it certainly tells you why we're having a dispute. They're misleading the public again. They're trying to blame the workers. They're using false comparisons. Uh, They want to compare transit workers to nurses and firefighters instead of comparing transit workers to other transit workers, even those within Translink and those in other cities. It certainly was fine to do that when they were talking about the uh, important executive and CEO compensation, and they continue to blame the workers. Look, we know the public is behind us. We've interacted with tens of thousands of people over the last three weeks. Uh, they have told us that they know exactly where the blame lies. It blame uh, lies at the uh, you know, unaccountable executives of Transit and CNBC. Right, but Gavin, that's one thing three weeks ago, but when you actually shut down the bus system, people can be quite fickle and their opinion changes really quickly. Are you not concerned that you may lose public support? Well, again, we've been saying all along the last thing we wanted to do was impact the public, but we know the public has been telling us that they're behind us. But at some point, uh, this has to escalate, and that's why we're scheduling a large community public rally for next Thursday, November 28th, in front of Translink at 1 p.m. so the public can come and join us and stand together and uh, and put the focus where it should be, which is on Translink. And the Mayor's Council is meeting that day as well, so it's really time for the Mayor's Council to get over the shiny PowerPoint presentations they get from Translink executives and start asking some tough questions. Uh, on behalf of their citizens. So is this a way then just to apply maximum amount of pressure? Well, any uh, labour dispute, uh, at some point you have to apply the pressure. Ultimately, uh, the power of workers is their labour. And we've tried to uh, uh, go on a very uh, measured approach. We've tried to start with a small overtime ban. We've given plenty of notice to the public at each step of the way. Unlike in 2001, we haven't moved to a complete work stoppage. And nor are we saying that this is an unlimited work stoppage. This is a three-day work stoppage to get the attention of the company and to say that we're serious. And again, uh, we know there will be disruption, uh, but the blame lies uh, squarely at the feet of these uh, uh, executives. This it, is the first time in 18 years this has happened, Simi. So, and we hear that there is also problems at SkyTrain. So they've accepted no blame for any of this and are simply trying to attack the workers. And it's not going to work. It's not going to get them a deal. Now, SkyTrain workers, of course, also having their own labor mm-hmm. issues right now. Has there been any coordination? Will there be any future coordination of job action? Well, workers will respect each other's picket lines. We certainly are in touch with the SkyTrain local leadership. We have been all throughout the year. We we haven't been coordinating bargaining approaches, but we know that they're likely dealing with a lot of important issues for their members as well. And really, it, it, the root cause is still the same. You've got these executives that just think they're unaccountable and um, they don't treat their workers fairly. That's the simple truth of this whole dispute. Uh, and it's time for the public and uh, the mayors to take back control of Transink and, and get some results for working people. Well, wait, if you say that workers respect picket lines and where are you going to be picketing next week and will that impact SkyTrain? No, we don't expect any impact on SkyTrain. Um, we have an agreement uh, at the Labour Board about uh, picketing locations for SkyTrain and West Van uh, Transit, so we will only be picketing our work sites. But ultimately, uh, if SkyTrain workers, uh, you know, uh, walk off the job at some point, then, you know, we certainly wouldn't cross their picket lines either. And uh, the workers that work under the same system of transit uh, at the ground level, the rank and file level, they certainly support each other in every way they can. But uh, our picketing will be focused at Coast Mountain Bus Company locations. Now, we kind of open the phones here again. Gavin, just after your press conference there, we wanted to get some initial reaction from people on this. I just want you to have a listen to what it is that people have been saying. I live in BC. I get paid by people from BC. I, I don't go running around saying, you know, plumbers get more in Toronto. Right. Or I am disgusted. It really hurts us 
citizens, us common people that are out here, and it's just quite frankly beyond reproach and disgusting. I think that's the public service union. I would fire them all. I would put in the all the taxi cab drivers are going to lose your job when Uber company comes in and let them drive the, uh, drive the buses because at $32.16 an hour, I have uh, many people that would take that job in a heartbeat. What a joke. Why won't he go to mediation? I'll tell you why. Because they won't get their unrealistic demands met. They've been offered three times. That's what big kids do when you can't agree. Let's bring in a mediator. Nope, we're not going there. We're not going there. Why? Because he'll lose at the table. Just keeps talking about Edmonton and Toronto. Funny, he doesn't mention Moncton, Winnipeg, where Vancouver bus operators get paid more than them. What is your response to hearing that, Gavin? Well, I certainly think the public has every right to voice their opinion. The opinion that we've been hearing uh, from the vast, uh, overwhelming majority of public transit uh, users is that they, they don't want to see any disruption, uh, but ultimately they support the the drivers and mechanics, and they know where the blame lies. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, the issues are clear. They certainly had no problem comparing compensation with Toronto, which is another large metropolitan city within Canada uh, where there are lots of trips and, and lots of uh, issues. The housing prices here are higher than Toronto. The affordability crisis is higher here than Toronto. And so, you know, we don't expect to get on par with Toronto wages, and we don't expect to get there overnight. We expect to try to close the gap over the life of a collective agreement. We think that's reasonable. And even if you uh, don't agree with that argument, what is the argument for paying skilled trades workers under TransLink with the same qualifications, doing the same work, such vastly different rates? What would you expect? Would you accept mediation at this point in an effort to avoid this? Well, we've been saying all along that TransLink and Coast Mountain are just involved in playing games. They're not actually serious about bargaining. Uh, this is all just media spin. I mean, we heard them out today uh, calling our training of, uh, of picket captains a stunt, as if men and women who are working hard, serving the public every day, and preparing to forgo their paychecks for job action uh, for the first time in 18 years is some kind of a stunt. I think that shows you the exact mentality of TransLink. They tried to have Mr. McDaniel out there uh, as the face of it. Now we've had a never-ending uh, rotating cast of of nameless communications peoples from TransLink, um, you know, like some uh, some bad actors in a bad movie, uh, really just attacking the workers. The simple fact remains is our members are determined to reach uh, a fair comparison, get closer to Toronto, deal with the disparity in SkyTrain wages. Uh, we are not under the public sector mandate. We are funded by three levels of government. And at the end of the day, uh, it was good enough for the executives and certainly should be good enough for the workers. Would you go back to the table? We'll go back to the table any time. We're in touch with the company all the time. And uh, the issues aren't complicated. It's just a, a question as to whether or not they're serious about resolving them. Um, you know, we, we do speak. and uh, But, uh, again, it's their overall approach. This is what we've been saying from day one. I've been saying that you need a system approach to the attitude of the people running these organizations because they don't believe that they're accountable to the public. They think they can just hide their dirty little secret, which is that they don't treat their workers fairly, and now they're blaming the workers. Uh, the reality is, is um, first time in 18 years, Simi, we've heard this, so they're saying, uh, don't look over here. It's not us. Uh, it's just the workers. There's a reason the workers are so upset, not just here, but at SkyTrain and, and Move Up workers as well are upset. So uh, there's a problem here, and, and they need to acknowledge it. And as soon as we finally see uh, an understanding that uh, their approach to bargaining, attacking the workers, has caused this, uh, and that they're prepared to you know, talk seriously about these legitimate comparisons, we can get a deal. But so far, that's not been their approach, and that's why we decided uh, that we need to escalate. Thank you for your time. 
Thanks again, Simi. That is Gavin McGarrigal, the Western Regional Director of Unifor, expanding on his comments that he made full shutdown of the bus and sea bus system Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of next week. Beginning one week from today, we will engage in a complete system shutdown on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday of next week. No members of Unifor Local 111 and 2200 will report for work on those days. You heard that right here about an hour ago. That is Unifor spokesperson Gavin McGarrigal talking about a complete bus and sea bus shutdown for Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of next week. That obviously adds a new level of pressure to this whole transit strike and situation. But does it also mean that it now reaches the highest level of attention? That would be the provincial government. Does it put more pressure on the government to do something? Well, we thought we would check in now with Keith Baldry, our Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief on that. Hi, Keith. Hey, Simi. Does this change things, do you think? Well, it certainly ratchets up the pressure. I've been sort of talking to Harry Baines, the Labour Minister, and other cabinet ministers for, for some time now. And there's some nervousness uh, in this government because they know full well the public is not going to tolerate an extensive shutdown of a gigantic transit system. Uh, so the pressure will be on Baines uh, to do something. He has a number of options at his disposal. He can appoint a mediator. He can appoint what's called a special mediator, which has a little more power of like, compelling people to, to sort of talk to him or her. Uh, he can uh, ask the Labour Board to designate essential service levels. Uh, he can uh, direct a vote. He can actually order the employer's last offer to be sent to the membership for a vote. Uh, he can also bring in legislation to invoke or impose a cooling-off period. And uh, we've seen that in the past, and traditionally that's right. for 90 days. But uh, it's really, it's really, we're just beginning now, I think, in terms of pressure on the government. There really was no pressure up until now with C-bus cancellations, but a wholesale shutdown, that's a completely different story. Yeah, because this is very different than 18 years ago, right? All we've heard for 15 years is, get out of your car, use transit, use transit. So people do, it's, and now this is going to happen. A much bigger system than it was in 2001. Uh, the, it's almost double the, the ridership. It was about 260. 7 million rides uh, a year in 2001. In 2018, it was about 440 million. Uh, the number of buses has increased by about 600. The number of bus routes have increased by almost 60. Uh, so it's much more part of people's lives than it was in 2001. The other situation you had in 2001, it was the summer when the strike occurred. Uh, school Universities weren't affected that much. Uh, and the only way you can get to university is through, through a bus right now, UBC yeah. and SFU. And it straddled two governments. It was the end of the NDP government and the beginning of the BC Liberal government. And this one, though, lands smack in the middle of the NDP's mandate. And the other reason I've picked up ner- nervousness here uh, in this government is because they know full well they're in power because they won the ridings in Metro Vancouver in the suburbs where, guess what, the bulk of the uh, bus ridership lives. So literally, NDP voters ride those buses, and if those buses are not in service, uh, are they going to take out anger on the government for not getting involved? But um, it's going to be fascinating to watch how how it unfolds next week, because the legislature will be in session for the first two days of that strike. Right. And I think it'll be a little chaotic inside the House. So d- d- can you sense more nervousness on this issue? Can you sense that, yeah, they are hearing more about this? Oh, yeah, I just talked to a couple of MLAs. There's a big ceremony here. 
a couple ceremonies that both caucuses are at, and everybody's talking about this. This is suddenly, you know, I had an MLA come up to me and say, hey, did you hear what Unifor just announced? And I said, you know, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so they're going to be talking about it in the caucus rooms. I expect this is going to be the focal, the focus of question period today. Uh, I think the Liberals are going to demand that Harry Baines nip this in the bud before it gets out of hand, and, uh, and we'll see where it goes. All right, Keith, thank you very much. All right, Sammy. That is Keith Baldry, our Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief, just taking the temperature there over in Victoria. All right, let's get you an update over what is happening in Ottawa today. So we have had a major cabinet change announced, and this will be essentially what the new government is going to look like in this minority parliament. Some new faces, some familiar ones, and also in new roles as well. So they've all been just kind of finishing up being sworn in at Rideau Hall right now. We know that Bill Morneau is staying on as finance minister. We know that Krista Freeland is now the deputy prime minister and minister of intergovernmental affairs uh, that will make her the point person in dealing with this whole Ottawa situation and, you know, Alberta, Saskatchewan. But let's get some more updates on this now with the help of Abigail Beeman, our global national Ottawa correspondent. And she joins us now. Abigail, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. Any surprises, first of all? Well, there were a few surprises. Uh, talking first about Krista Freeland, as, as you say, there were uh, there was hints that uh, that that deputy PM uh, role would be hers, as well as Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs. Very key when you have tensions with so many of the provinces uh, and those Conservative premiers, especially. So uh, we heard that ahead of time, but uh, just surprising in terms of everybody was waiting to hear what exactly would happen with foreign affairs. Uh, her replacement at foreign affairs, Francois Philippe Champagne just looked over the moon. I mean, he's generally a happy person, but he just looked so excited to be taking on that very large role uh, in foreign affairs. You mentioned Bill Morneau uh, keeps his role as finance minister. That's not a surprise. Uh, there was a, a bit of a shuffle in the health portfolio, which may have been surprising to some. Uh, Jeanette Petipa taylor as health minister, was uh, viewed to be effective in that role. She has been given what could be seen as a demotion to a deputy uh, uh, deputy whip of the party, replaced by Patty Haidu, who was very uh, effective as as uh, Minister of Labour. So I'm sure effective is in health as well, but a bit of a surprise for uh, Jeanette to have that uh, step down there. In terms of new faces to Cabinet, um, it had been leaked or suggested earlier that Stephen Guilbeault would become Minister of Heritage, the environmentalist from Quebec, and that is uh, indeed what happened. But in total, seven new faces will sit at this cabinet table, and that includes two uh, brand newly elected uh, MPs. Can we run through as well, like kind of winners and losers on this? Who do you think came out better here? Well, I would say that for sure, those two brand new MPs, Stephen Gilbeau and Anita Anand, who is a, an Ontario MP, Minister of Public Services and Procurement. I mean, it's a huge win for them to simply win a seat for the first time and land at the cabinet table. Uh, that is a very big deal. Uh, Champagne, who I mentioned, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, that's a win for him. Two others that you could call a clear win here would be Mark Miller as Minister of Indigenous Services and Marco Mendez. 
Chino as Minister of Immigration. The, the, those are two men uh, who uh, have worked, uh, have seen to have uh, hardworking reputations. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they're also seen together often on, on Parliament Hill, but especially uh, Mr. Mendocino, I think, had, had wanted to get into a cabinet for a long time. So a, a step up for them, for sure. Right. And what is Jim Carr doing exactly? Right. Uh, yeah, important to mention that as well. So Jim Carr has been named special advisor uh, to the prairies. This is not a cabinet role, so he's not a cabinet minister, but he will be the prime minister's point person to deal with the issue of Western alienation. Uh, worth noting as well, uh, in terms of Mr. Carr's health, he's said to be doing well, but he was not at the ceremony today because he is in Winnipeg undergoing cancer treatments. And in that vein, uh, Dominic LeBlanc, uh, who is also fighting cancer, was at the ceremony, but uh, looked quite a, a bit different. He's lost his hair, he's lost quite a bit of weight, and he wore a mask, like a surgical mask, covering his face for uh, much of the ceremony. So uh, some 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 thoughts there in terms of the health of those uh, two individuals, yeah. but we're told Jim Carr is, is doing well, but he is at home undergoing treatment. Right, and from what I saw there, it's a lot, of, if there were two areas that really won on this, it would be Montreal and uh, really Toronto, because they have a lot of MPs from those areas in the cabinet positions. Absolutely. They, the Liberals also elected a lot of MPs, yes. especially in Toronto. Um, Quebec's a bit of a different picture, but Toronto is, is a huge, uh, stronghold for the Liberals. Uh, you'll note with, uh, Christian Freeland, of course, a, a downtown Toronto MP, but she is, will point out herself that she was born in Alberta. So that intergovernmental role, I'm sure, will come up frequently, her, her ties to right. Alberta there. But in terms of where the Liberals can, can draw, draw from, and that was a lot of the chatter, you know, before this cabinet was announced, will Trudeau pick somebody unelected from Western provinces to, to fill that gap, to take on that role? Uh, but that's uh, not what happened here. But they're, of course, limited in what they can pick from from where they won seats. All right, Abigail, thank you so much for that. Thank you. That's Abigail Beeman, our Global National Ottawa correspondent. You can hear more of her coverage coming up on Global National this evening. Well, just because you haven't heard about it for a while doesn't mean that anything has let up when it comes to our overdose crisis. In fact, frontline workers in Vancouver have been out with some pretty serious warnings this week, and we wanted to find out more about that. So joining us now is Sarah Blythe, the Executive Director of the Overdose Prevention Society. Sarah, thanks for being here. Hi, thank you. Thank you. what's been happening this week? So uh, yesterday was just probably one of the worst days I've seen in the crisis, actually, in terms of just, uh, you know, the double overdose with the benzos that have been introduced, which creates a different kind of an overdose. And it's also something that people don't want. And, you know, it's kind of like people completely black out for hours um, at a time. And, uh, you know, with fentanyl, people... When they are, you know, when they use a little bit or or just enough, they're they're you know they don't black out completely right. and they're functioning. But so you know, in the case of the benzo, it's a very lethal combination, and um and and it, you know it really uh, like first of all they'll overdose on the fentanyl and then they'll stay overdosed for hours and hours and hours um, in a kind of a blackout way, not losing everything. Um, you know, waking up with no clothes on, things like that, just terrible situations. So is there like um, a contaminated drug supply this week, something that's going around? Yeah. So, uh, you know, this week uh, it's it's very contaminated with uh, benzos. We just had the drug testing peoples here 
Um, they were testing all day, and it's you know mostly benzos that are in the the mixed with fentanyl, which is really just a terrible combination. And we've really seen the effects. Um, just you know, many, 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 many overdoses happening all day. Frontline workers and ambulances and firefighters uh, out and about uh, helping people, and uh, it's it's. It's really a traumatic situation. Uh, you go from one to the next, and it's each situation is equally traumatic for the person, you know, overdosing and the people that are dealing with it. Sarah, it must be so hard. Yeah. I mean, you feel like you just get a handle on one thing, right? Like you're just warning yeah. people about one thing, and they're figuring that out, and then along comes more contamination of something else. Yeah, I mean, it's just the drugs are contaminated. Uh, you know, with all kinds of different things, people don't seem to care. They just want to make a profit. Uh, you know, and the only thing we can do is try and talk to the the low level drug dealers that are in the streets. And you, you know, um, now that we have the testing machine, we can say, "Hey, listen, we've been testing the stuff that you've been giving to people, and uh, and it's terrible. You know, you've like, what are you doing? You know, and, and what do they say keep, though? Keeping them accountable." Uh, you know, they say they're going to change it to make it better, whatever, but it never really gets better. I mean, the really the truth of the matter is that some of our most vulnerable people uh, need help from, uh, you know, doctors and medical professionals and not, uh, you know, drug dealers that, right. that don't seem to care. Now, Sarah, when um, you say that this kind of overdose is different, you were describing the way that is. So does that make the recovery harder for people? Like if they're if they were overdosing multiple yeah. times and they knew what that was like before, how does this impact them when this overdose is different? Uh, well, it's just a terrible situation because it's more of a, a like a like they don't remember, you know, a long period of time. So they end up losing a lot of their stuff. Um, but and also, you know, the the benzos affect the fentanyl in a way that um, that even is even worse in case of you know could be a lethal, very very easily lethal combination. So um, you know, good that people are coming in here. Um, we are still running around in the alleys and streets trying to help people as well. Um, it's very, uh, it's just a really sad terrible situation yeah. are people understanding and, uh, that like the, are the users understanding that there's something different in the supply right now uh yeah yep they are and 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 you know usually people can adapt um to you know um try and find something that's not as bad or use a little bit and a little bit more but really what we need to do is get people a safe supply of something that's not going to kill them because you know or help or you know hurt them or they know what they're taking really what it comes down to is People should know what they're taking, and uh, it's a lot easier to to even come off it eventually. If you want to come off of drugs, it's better to know you know exactly what you're taking to begin with, right? So that's yeah. that's why you know in some ways methadone and and some of the other uh, suboxone, you know what you get those from a doctor. You know how much you're taking of them, and then you can taper it down eventually. But you can't taper something down when it's such a crazy high dosage. And, and it's all over with all kinds of different drugs. Benzos, you can't even go into a lot of the detoxes. They won't take people because some of the symptoms of withdrawal are so right. severe. How many numbers so, of people are we talking about here? Like how many overdoses are we seeing? Are there clusters? Yeah, there's clusters. There's, uh, you know, the other day we saw 21. Um, Holy moly. Yesterday they were all day long. I haven't even checked uh, how many happened yesterday. Today is a bit calmer and... You know, we, uh, you know, we've had, like, we had the drug testers here, so we were able to talk to some of the people who, um, in the alley, who are right. giving out the drugs, 
and, you know, say, hey, this is like, you're, you know, you're going to kill people here. And I mean, uh, you know, that's not really ideal situation, right? Yeah, you don't want to have to go to the um, yeah, drug dealers to tell them to please yeah, stop. No, I mean, you know, it's, but, you know, we do a lot of things that, uh, that are sort of, are, are, you know, that are necessary, but, you know, uh, aren't, you know, aren't really things that we should have to do. Right. We should just be going to their medical professionals. Um, you know, they should be having, you know, being helped. A lot of it is uh, untreated me- mental health and physical health and trauma conditions that should yeah. be, you know, um, you know, our most vulnerable folks uh, are, are out there. Uh, you know, some, like, I, I think one of the biggest things when I started working down here was um, that the, that the shock that people with, you know, that can't hear or multiple sclerosis or, or severe injuries um, are left on their own in society with not a lot of help, right? And this may be, you know, I I realize that uh, the frontline workers do a lot of different things down here. Um, That is so true. Uh, Listen, we wanted to get get the word out, so we thank you for helping us out with that, Sarah. And listen, good luck down there. Yeah, yeah, we just need a safe supply. So everybody, I hope anyone who's listening can help us. Okay. We need some help. Okay, Thank you, take Sarah. Care. You Bye. too. That's Sarah Blythe, the Executive Director of the Overdose Prevention Society. They are doing some of the toughest work imaginable, working down there in the downtown east side, preventing people from fatally overdosing. All right, let's talk those driving pet peeves out there. So research company Mario Conseco did a little poll on this recently, and they found that the most common problem that we see on the roads is people not signaling. 61% of the people surveyed said that they had seen that, so someone not signaling on the road in the last month or so. And when I heard that, I thought only 61% because I thought that number should have been 100%. But we thought, let's chat to Mario now and find out more about what their poll uncovered. And he joins us. Mario, thanks so much for being here. It's my pleasure, Simi. I think that number must have been wrong. I think that must (laughs) should have been 100%. You know what? Going back to the one we did last year, asking exactly the same questions, the number was 71% across Canada and 83% across British Columbia. So we're talking about a major uh, reduction in the number of residents who say that they saw somebody who was not signaling. So it could be the start of a trend. I think we we need to do this again next year and, and see what happens. Uh, but ultimately, it's a fairly big number when it comes to something that no yeah. driver should be doing out there on the road. No kidding. All right. What else did you really notice? What struck you in this poll? Well, one thing that is quite interesting is cars that take up two or more spots in a, a lot. And, you know, this is uh, something that is always frustrating for motorists. You find the spot, you think you can fit there, and then there's a car who is essentially uh, taking more space than they should. of Canadians saw this over the past month, 44% in BC, but it climbs to 61% in Alberta. And last year, they were also number one when it came to this particular peep. So we know you drive very large pickup trucks, but you can still find a way to fit between the lines. Oh, I see people doing this downstairs in the parkade all the time. It's like they don't want anybody to touch their precious car, right? Well, that is definitely part of it. You know, it's not a situation that you want to see, particularly because parking spots are are difficult. And, you know, if you have a situation where you have somebody who is taking two spaces, uh, the correct way to do this would be to charge them for both. Aha. Okay. So what were some of the other noticeable things? 
Well, uh, cars uh, that didn't stop at an intersection, 44% across Canada. This is down four points from what we saw last year. Uh, it is also big in British Columbia at 41%, uh, something that happens more often sort of, that is being noticed more uh, by those over the age of 55. And it, what's interesting here is we don't see a lot of difference in the reporting when it comes to uh, the way specific generations feel about things. Uh, but when you ask generations who they blame for the uh, very bad uh, behavior that they see on the road, they definitely point the fingers at, at, at each other oh, when it no. comes to the generations. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all. I'm sure every generation does that. One of the other interesting uh, questions you asked, though, is the number of people who felt like driving behavior has gotten worse over the last five years. It is uh, consistently what we found last year. So 47% of uh, Canadians say that drivers in their city or town are worse now than they were five years ago. Uh, the number is highest in Alberta, 57%. BC is sort of on par with the national average at 48%. Uh, but the level of criticism is definitely bigger with those over the age of 55. So 53% of uh, those uh, who are over the age of 55 compared to only 35% for millennials. So when it comes to that, I think there's a sense from the youth who are saying, no, 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 it's not our fault. It's your fault. You guys are going too slowly. And then it's the over 55 saying, no, it's your fault. You guys are going too fast. So it's a wonderful time to be a Generation Xer, I tell you. No kidding. It sounds about right. Uh, one of the other interesting questions I thought was, I, and I can't believe this number was so small, 44% of people said that they had witnessed a driver not stopping at an intersection. Only 44%. I, I've seen Only way 44. more people. Yeah. Well, and you know, I think part of the situation here is uh, there might be a sense uh, from the respondents to the survey that they didn't see this necessarily or, or remember it as vividly as they do. Uh, the one thing I would hate to see is, you know, some of these things become so basic that nobody notices them anymore. Uh, but we still see a high number of residents who say, you know, this is this is something that is illegal. It's something that if if an officer would have seen you, uh, probably you would have gotten a ticket for all of these things, except the, uh, the uh, situation related to how you park. Uh, but, you know, we still see a high level of, of uh, residents uh, who say that this is something that they're seeing and it's not the type of behavior that you want to see. I mean, there's a silver lining. The numbers are lower now than they were last year, but they're still pretty high when it comes to the overall effect. Yeah, it also overall just sounds like we're kind of unhappy with what we see on the roads out there, Mario. Yeah, definitely. You know, one of the things that I'm also tracking is how many people say, no, this didn't happen to me. I didn't see anybody turning right or left from an incorrect lane. I didn't see anybody not stopping at an intersection. And the number is 21% across the country. So this is slightly up from 16% last year. But ideally, I mean, we all went through the basic training. We all had to get a license. Uh, you don't want to see this number at the level where we have it right now, because ultimately we should all be sharing the road in a way that makes sense. And none of us should be engaging in this type of behavior when, when, when we are behind the wheel. Oh, that's so nice that you think that. But no, that doesn't actually happen out there on the road. It's an ideal. It's an ideal. <laughs> it is an ideal. Mario, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Simi. Thank you. That's Mario Conseco, president of Research Company, talking about the most common problem that we have on our roads. And the most people, 61% of people said the most common problem they see is drivers not signaling, not using that turn indicator before they're about to make a turn. 
I and I'm surprised they said 61% because I thought maybe 100% of people would have said this. I see this every day, every single day. What do you see out there? What is that number one pet peeve for you? Is it cheaters in the HOV lane? Because I had a lot of people emailing about that today. Is it people going slow in the fast lane? Had a lot of emails about that today as well. What is your pet peeve out there? We're opening up the phone lines, 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898. You tell me what is that thing that bugs you the most about the way people are driving out there on their roads? Lots of people did the left lane hog thing. Oh, so many. I couldn't even keep up. Uh, people not stopping fully at stop signs. Either. That's a big one. You know, there's a stop sign uh, right, like a, it's a, a one house or two houses down from my house. And sometimes if I stand there, if I just look out my front window, I can see people not stopping at that stop sign. It happens all the time. Uh, people running red lights. That's another one of my pet peeves. You know, you can see the countdown coming, you know what's going to happen, and they just blow through it well after it has turned red. What is the one that really bugs you? I had a text message too from someone who said, people who make unsafe left turns. He said, I I ride a motorcycle and I have been hit twice by left turners. He said, the last time it left me in intensive care for three months with a broken neck. Okay, that one really does, that sounds awful. Yeah, people not taking a proper left turn. You're right, that is a, that is a very big pet peeve. Uh, let's go to Mike in Burnaby who's called in. Mike, what is your driving pet peeve? Well, mostly it's people not stopping when they're turning right at stop signs or at red lights. Oh, they just blow through it, like not actually waiting to see pedestrians, everything okay, safe to go, that kind of thing? Yeah, I'd say, or just slowing down but not really actually coming to a complete stop and it's also, I see pedestrians also not paying attention to the correct signage or the signals as well. So, All right, that's a good one. Mike, thank you very much for that. Yeah. Excellent suggestion from Mike there. It all, doesn't it seem to you, though, that all of these suggestions, for the most part, other than the freeway ones, we're talking about regular kind of city driving, would just be better if we just kind of paid attention more, just kind of slowed down a little bit more? I had an email from someone who said when they were taught when they had driving lessons, they were taught that eye contact is so important. And they said that we've really gotten away from that. Like, did that person see me? Do I know that they saw me and therefore I should react accordingly? I thought that was a good point too. Let me go to Todd in Coquitlam. Hi, Todd. Hi, Todd. How are you? Good. Thank you. Yeah. What did you want to say? Uh, Daytime driving lights. Yes. They're great. uh, They're great in the daytime, but at nighttime, most people don't realize they don't have any taillights on their car and they don't actually have full headlights. That is another big one. People do it all the time. Like, what do you do? Do you like flash your lights at them to let them know? Well, they're usually in front of me, so it doesn't really help. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I found that too, because so, that used to be the universal signal that if you flash your high beams at somebody that they should know that, oh, there's my headlights aren't on or something is wrong. But I find that people don't pay attention to that anymore. No, they don't. It's usually, oh, there must be, the RCMP must be somewhere near if you flash your lights. <laughs> That's so true. Thank you for that, Todd. You're right. I've tried that, and I just and sometimes I'll be behind somebody for like quite a while, and I'm like, nope, they are just not getting that message. So then you give up. I've got James from Pit Meadows on the line. Hi, James. Hello. What's your pet peeve? The basic right-of-way laws. It's amazing to me how many people don't know what basic right-of-way means, particularly when you're coming to an intersection and yours are through traffic 
and they turn in front of you, even though they've arrived at the same time. Yeah. It's amazing how many accidents actually happen as a result of a simple, basic understanding of what right of way means. Yeah. But that's everywhere. I see that at traffic circles, too. Like, same thing. People just go because they think they can. Yeah. Well, it's it's very, very important that uh, people remember what right of way means. And, you know, just go online and, uh, you know, there's lots of nice graphics that you can uh, look (laughs) at and interpret to learn what right of way means. And ICBC rates would come down because of a lot of these accidents that have happened by people not knowing what right of way means. It's so important. That is so true. Thank you very much for that. Appreciate that call. Let me just go to Barry here. Hi, Barry. Hey, Simi. What's your pet peeve? Yeah, I, well, I could write a bloody book, but uh, one, <laughs> of the ones I, one of the ones is the HOV lane. People will get in that lane, and then they'll go the same speed as the lane oh, yeah. beside it. Yeah. And that drives me nuts. Like, why? Well, they're just getting the other lane. If, you know, let us all pass. Like, it's kind of, you know, it's a fast lane. It's a passing lane at the end of the day. The point of it is to let us all get going faster, or else why would they have it? So don't just sit there and then go the same speed as everybody else. That's this just, just, this just happened to me on the weekend. I agree with you completely. Like, we're not telling you to, like, it's like a speeding lane or whatever, but if you don't want to go faster than the other traffic then you don't need to be in the HOV lane. That's (laughs) right. I agree. Just just move on. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for that, Barry. Appreciate that. That just makes so much sense. So, of course, we don't see that happen on our roads, right? It just makes way too much sense.